Yeah. Can't go wrong with this one. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, beginning in uh, verses 4 through 14. Then we'll read a bunch of other texts. And then I'm going to come forward in my own invitation. (laughs) I already know what's going to happen on this one. Because I'm going to talk about four steps or four responses that when you're confronting worry in your life, a biblical basis of the way in which to confront that worry. Winning the war over worry. You know this is a very familiar passage. The Apostle Paul, who had been through, honestly, a very traumatic life, a very victorious life. We know he's the champion. Many believe he wrote as much as half the New Testament, if you believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. But at least much of that New Testament. Saved on the Damascus Road, a champion for Christ. And then you hear that long dossier of the Apostle Paul, how he was beaten three times, he was left for dead, he was hung over a wall on a basket. I mean, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. I mean, this dude had a lot of problems. Wouldn't you say if anybody in the universe had an excuse to worry about stuff, it would be Paul. And how did he end his life? Not in a celebrity, not voted at some Dove Award or, you know, some kind of super... Uh, celebrity thing. He was, he was decapitated. He was put in prison. He wrote Second Timothy. And then shortly after that, his head was chopped off and he was ushered immediately into the presence of God. And so I say using his credentials, we, have a, we can learn from this man who had every license to worry about a bunch of stuff. He's encouraging the church at Philippi when he says these words and the text is in front of us. Rejoice in the Lord, I, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. I hate that verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Powerful, powerful words. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, Paul says, or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I know what is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles." Now, before I get into this, I've got a few verses I want to read. I did a word study. <clears throat> In fact, if you would, if you'll just go look, you'll Google a, a good, like I use the BibleNet, the Bible.net as a good a free software. You can go right online and get it. 
uh, of the times worry is mentioned. Let me just give you a few verses. I'm already convicted. Matthew chapter uh, 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Well, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Now, that's just flat out convicting. Let me give you another one. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the fields grow, fields grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, was, dre- was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry saying what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, and you know this verse, you've probably memorized it. Seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these things will be given you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Now that's just flat out convicting. Do I hear an amen? I mean, we can just stop right there. I've read enough of the verses. You know how we have a tendency, whether you're a choleric or sanguine or phlegmatic or melancholic temperament, whether you're that extreme extrovert, whether you're a moody person or whether you're constantly an exhorter, upbeat, all of us have to deal with in our heart and our mind, worrying about things. Now, there's a difference between being concerned about something that you, of course, a normal person has concern when you see someone suffering or hurting or you've got a bill that needs to be paid. Of course, that's very normal and should, should not feel guilty about that. But when it gets to the place that in your conversation with the people around you, it all comes back to that thing. To the place that even when you pillow your head, you can't even rest because that thing dominates everything about your life. It's like all of life is spinning around the planet of your worry. We know that that has passed into the domain from being concerned, as we, it's normal to have, but into the sinful domain of worry. You know what really worry really says? God doesn't know, and God doesn't care. And certainly God cannot provide. A person who takes upon himself those events and circumstances that, quite frankly, that cause us to be fixated, what you're really saying is this, I can't trust God. He's not really in charge. He's stupid. He doesn't know. He doesn't see. And if he does see and does know, he certainly is not interested in assisting me. I will tell you, the great faith burner is worry. That's why Satan uses so manipulatively in your life. 
If he can get you fixated on something that gets you to a place that you neglect all of your Christian walk and your confidence in God that you get so wrapped up in this item or this thing or this relationship, Satan has won a great victory in your heart because it causes you to stop thinking about your God and how magnificent a provider he is and how he's ordering your steps and how he's in charge of your future and he'll take care of your past and he knows where you are at this very moment. That's what worry worry will do. It'll rape you of your spiritual vitality. It is a brutal spiritual harassment that moves in the domain of of robbing us of the joy that's ours to claim, of to have that, that peace of mind that God says, I'm going to give you peace of mind when, you're, when your thoughts are fixed on Him. Well, there are four things that we worry about. I'll try to do these quickly, kind of summarizing if we could categorize them. And I hope what right now is happening is as I've rambled just a bit, read a lot of passages is that the Spirit of God right now is in your heart brought to mind again this thing, this relationship that's got you, quite honestly, not enjoying your walk with Christ like He intends because it's moved into the domain of worrying. And so circumstances, these are things beyond your control. People get so in the habit of worry that if you save them from drowning and put them on the bank to dry in the sun with hot chocolate and muffins, they wonder whether they are catching cold. That's John J. Chaplin said that. And then some anonymous person put it this way, Don't tell me that worry doesn't do any good. I know better. The things that I worry about don't happen. And so we worry about, quite frankly, things we can't control. You know, if you own an older car and it's running really good, you found yourself worrying about, well, I think about all those parts, those pistons going up and down and the wheels spinning and, and, and the car's been so good for a month. When's it going to break down again? Don't you just love hanging around people like that? I mean, everything is going so good and since everything is going so rather than enjoying... These, these moments, and they're fleeting moments. They, you find themselves worrying about something they know it's going to happen. I mean, they got a B-plus on an exam. But they worry about, you know, what's going to happen if they don't get a, a, you know, a 4.0 and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and an A. I mean, I've been around people all my life that are like that, circumstances. And then the second uh, category would be responsibilities for which we have no authority. People absolutely worry about things that, pardon me for being so blunt, it's none of your business. Think about that for a moment. All of us uh, live in a broad sphere of relationships that has a variety of chain of command. And your task is to do a specific task. And uh, you're around people that quite honestly get so encumbered, uh, and maybe it's because we're bombarded with the media, I mean, you're so wrapped up in how President Obama should be doing his job and you're maybe a representative on Make This Vote and Mr. McConnell, what he ought to be doing here. And, and of course, you sign up and you vote and, and you're doing what you ought to be doing, but when it's all said and done, you, you really aren't responsible. And I've discovered there are people around us that get themselves all in a tizzy 
over things that's really none of their business. You know anybody like that? Could have been the guy you looked at in the mirror this morning. Not only circumstances and responsibilities, but we also worry about a future for which you can't control. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Let me read that again. It was so powerful, I, I, I wanted to quote it. Spurgeon says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but worry only empties today of its strength. Think about that. How much could you be enjoying the grandkids, your spouse, the beautiful things that you have in your life? But quite frankly, you're so anxious about tomorrow, the next month, the next year. And Scripture says, sufficient today is the evil thereof. Don't take a thought about tomorrow. Of course, plan your life like you're going to live forever But recognize this may be the only last moment. And there is coming that last moment. And there's a special award given to those that when you die or when the Lord comes, that in that moment of last breath or at His arrival, if you're anticipating, in other words, you're living each moment, this moment full-heartedly is under the Lord and you're anticipating His return, the Bible says there's a special award or reward given for that person. Now, you know I worked with Jerry Falwell for 21 years, and he had many strengths. In fact, you know, one benefit about sitting in a pew and hearing a preacher talk a lot, it isn't very long before you know his strengths and his besetting sins. And I was there long enough, that, and I've made a science out of this, quite frankly. Whenever I have an authority, and I've asked the Lord, help me have so much insight into that authority, because I know I'm going to answer to God by how I respond to those in authority. Not whether or not authority can meet my expectations but whether or not I can be a great subordinate. And so every place I've served, I try to do this over the years, every pastor I've ever had, I pray for the pastor, I pray for the pastor's wife, I pray for the kids. And I have very low expectation because a pastor or your boss will make a mistake. And guess what? When that mistake is made, guess who is impacted by it? You and me. And there's a real tendency that when we are moving along in our life, We get so wrapped up with what is going to be. This was a surprise to me. And and I've I've confessed this to my church. I don't think I'm going to do it in the other two services. I've confessed a lot of things in this 8 o'clock service, and I don't mention that as other two services, but I I think I'm I'm among people who really get it. There's a real temptation when you're younger. To think that when you get a certain age, I pushed the age back as I grew older and got closer to it. In the earlier days, I thought, man, when you turn 30, it'll be all over by then. Then later, 40. Then I was certainly persuaded because the government and, you know, when you get Social Security and when retirement settles in and by this time. So about at the age of 40, I thought, you know, when a dude hits 60, it'll be like cruise control, won't it? And you won't be nearly as tempted to worry as much. That's what I thought. And after all, I even taught, I taught in the ministry class, I taught uh, uh, adult development. And I went through early, middle to late adults. And I had all the break, break outcome, read all the books, and did uh, read some of the dissertations. And I would, with great authority, lecture on this material. And then I became one. 
And here's what I've discovered. The older you get, there's a different set of temptations for you. And the temptation to worry never leaves you. And so I've asked the Lord, Lord, help me. That in this stage of life, since all of us are going through some stage, that this whole issue about worrying about the future, I literally, this could be my last sermon. And so ever since I read Ogben Nino's book 25, 30 years ago, it's a secular salesman book that my brother, who owned a car dealership in Ohio, put me on to. One of the chapters in that book says, I'll live this day as if it were my last. Written by an unbeliever. And I thought, man, that's a biblical principle. If this were my very last day, if this were my last Sunday, it doesn't make a difference what your plans are for next week, next month. If this is my last, may it be my best. The words that I offer to my sweetheart, the interactions that I have with our folks, the letters that are written, the emails that were passed along, now the text messages. If this is the last text, the last email, the last conversation, if it's the last encounter, and someday it's going to be our last, and let me just tell you, I've done enough funerals, most people were caught by surprise. May it be my very best. The future is now. Now, I'm not saying you don't plan, you do your will, you buy your plots, but Becky and I with her mother, and she's relocated her plots, and there was a whole rationale why she did that, and she's got her plans down to, and I admire it, and so many of you have done the same thing. So I'm not saying you stop doing those things, but look, don't forget about today. Look who's with you today. Look at the health that you have today. Look at the ex- opportunities and experience you have right now. That's pretty cool. And so that's one thing. And then another thing is the past. We worry about the past. They cannot be recounted. Think about that. There are two days in the week on which I never worry. One is yesterday and the other is tomorrow. Robert Burdett said that. I mean, plan and deal with your past. But I have some folks that, uh, honestly, now they've got a few years under their belt. They constantly, and my wife, how dare she say this to me yesterday. She said, you know, studies show, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, here it comes, that the older you get, your longer-term memory improves and your short-term memory diminishes. How many believe my wife? Let's see, my wife said it. Come on now. look. It's like Sheila Tall. I don't know if she's in the house. Last weekend, I walked out that door, and she walked up to me a little bit, tears in eyes. She says, I'm really going to miss your wife. <laughs> I mean, what I do, then she backpedaled real quick. You can tell her I said this publicly this morning. In fact, I think they even record this for the radio. I may send this on to her. But, you know, I said, you know what, I, I agree with that. They're going to be a lot like me, okay, but they're really going to miss her. Well, that's one benefit. I'm taking her with me. Or uh, she's taking me with her. There's things of the past, and, and, and it's almost like it's a cruelty. Even though I'm made in the image of God, <clears throat> I, call, I recall July 8th, 1994. I can almost give you every hour not far from every minute of that day, and most of you don't even care about that day. And I'm not going to go into great detail, but it was a job transition. I just spoke in uh, Colorado Springs, had over a thousand young people, a hundred came to Christ. 
I boarded a plane, and before I boarded the plane, I got a phone call. And in that phone call, a decision was made to transition out of Lynchburg, Virginia, after 21 years of being there. I had a son that was a sophomore in high school, an eight-year-old daughter. Now, that's why that's really heavy on my mind. I can give you other days of notices that I've got a couple days, I think, are going to stick with me from my home. And by the way, I want to clear something up right now. <clears throat> I'm not going back home. I'm leaving home. This has become my home. I already told the deacons last night I won't go there. I'll try to keep my act together. Four things. Here we go. We're going to do it rapid fire because it took all my time and that introduction material here. Number one, if you're going to deal with worry, prioritize your relationships with Christ and worship Him. Rejoice in the Lord, the Bible says, and we just read this just a moment ago. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. You want to deal with worry in your life? Ask the Lord to give you that grace for that moment at that time to say, Lord, help me to see you. Not just this broken down this or this disappointment that or this struggle about the future or this notice I got. Lord, help me in the context of all these things that are overwhelming me and maybe not so overwhelming me. Help me to see you and see you bigger than all of it. I got a sermon. I never preached it here. But it's entitled, How Big Is God? I've referenced it a couple times. And the answer is, and usually when I preach that sermon, I have a whole rapid succession of things. And I have the audience saying with me, How big is God? And the answer always is, He's big enough. He is big enough. No matter what ails you, no matter what problem you are confronting, no matter what challenge you are facing, no matter what is worrying you, God is big enough. Think about that for a moment. He is bigger than that issue. He is bigger than that problem. He not only knows about it, understand it. He longs for you to take this burden upon, take uh, to let, let you take those burdens and cast all those upon him. He says, give me your burdens. Let me have them. This is what I do, God says. So the first step, I think it's the biggest step. If this domino falls, the rest are going to come, the next three points. Immediately ask God to give you the capacity to look through the lens of grace and see God is very God. He is in charge. I know it's a cliche almost, it's a bumper sticker statement, but there are no panic buttons near the throne of God. He doesn't get up one morning and read the USA Today or listen to some television broadcaster or, or even get uh, the news from how you and I get news. And then is surprised, but oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Do you know that God is never surprised? He is never shocked? For God, He does not think like we think. We think... This premise, I mean, that's what we're doing right now. I'm building somewhat of a case for the dealing of worry. And so we go one point and one point. I'm trying to, knowing that you can do seven things at once, even as I'm looking, to, I'm, I actually think you're listening to me right now. And so I know that there's about six or seven other things you're thinking of, even as I'm talking, but God is not like that. God 
Always was, always is, always will be, and there's no new thought with God. There's no action that's ever occurred or ever shall occur that's a brand new act, activity. He doesn't say, oh, I was surprised by that. And not only that, he's an act of God. Isn't this wonderful to know this on this Sunday morning here in July the 15th at this 8 o'clock service? Prioritize your relationship with Christ. That's why the devil wants you to do a lot of good things. Go to church. Maybe have visitation. Reach out a hand to someone in need. Get really busy doing a lot of good stuff. So busy, in fact, doing these good things that you're kept from the greatest thing. An intimacy, a relationship with Christ. Because the real cure for Worry begins with that ongoing, intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And once He is in the car, I wish I could sing that song. What's that country western singer? Jesus, I take my hands off the wheel. What's her name? Carrie Underwood. Good night. It became popular. It was one of her top hits. But there's a powerful truth to that. Lord, it tells the story of a, a gal, single parent, and she's lost her job, and she's destitute, and thinking about taking her own life. And she came to the place that I have nowhere else to go. And can I say it's not a real bad place? That finally says, I'm taking my hands off the wheel. Lord, you're going to have to take charge of everything. Well, we shouldn't have to suffer so much to get to the place that we say, Lord, you're the Lord. You're in charge. Whether in the mountaintops of victory or in the very lowest ebbs of defeat, God, you are worthy of worship. You're in charge. Not only prioritize your relationship, but number two, discipline your thought life. I really hate this verse. We get into all those things you're supposed to do. Above all else, the Bible says in Proverbs 4, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Some important verses, the man who thinks he knows something does not know yet how he, he is ought to think. 1 Corinthians 8.2 If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Galatians 6.3 In other words, the, the issue of worry is a battle of the mind. That's where we're, why we're to have our minds transformed under the Lordship of Christ through His Word. And then as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's one of the counseling techniques. I don't even like to call it a technique. I like to listen to the first 15 minutes of a, maybe a couple that's having conflict and just let them talk about whatever they want to talk about. And quite frankly, frankly the things that front burner with them, the things that come out of their mouth, is a revelation of their heart. Just listen to a talker talk, and very long you'll know what's important to that person. Because from the abundance of the heart, man speaks. You can't stop it. And if a person is fixated on some issue that's prompting them to live a lifestyle of worry, what's happened, it's, a, it's an issue of allowing the Spirit of God and the Lordship of Christ to control your thought life. If I could, we're supposed to think of, and you know the list, we even have them on a banner. Think of whatever is true as opposed to half-truth or falsehood. One of the things I've dealt with in uh, 30-some years of ministry, individuals will take elements of truth, 
twist them and repackage them to be divisive. I've had it happen here. Say just enough. I had someone once say, well, Dave Adams says that everybody who teaches a Sunday school class ought to have a master's degree. Now, where did that come from? In my earlier years here, which is not true, I was saying it to Mike Thomas, the young man that surrendered to ministry that's really struggling with his schooling. And uh, I did say that I think that if you've been under a man's ministry for five or six years, every key leader in that church ought to have the equivalence of a master's degree. Because as I get freshmen coming into college, they've been in school for uh, church and school for 12 years. And I say they ought to be able to test out of a lot of their Bible and theology if they've been in a well-organized ministry from the kindergarten through fifth grade. They ought to know the entire Bible. They ought to be able to give the books of the Bible in order. They ought to be able to say what each book represents. That ought to happen by the time they hit fifth and sixth grade. And we ought to test them as such. And so you've heard me at different times. My staff certainly has. But evidently, the man who's called to ministry... uh, Mike Thomas, his wife, you know, Jehovah's Witness fireman, he testified a week or so ago. Someone went to him, I think he's still very spiritually vulnerable, and I feel a tremendous obligation, and said, well, you know, the pastor says such and such. Well, shame on that person. And so, a half-truth will cause you to worry. Sometimes not having the whole truth. Whatever is true, boy, that's liberating, Do you know that a full truth will liberate you from worrying about junk and stuff? Or a total falsehood is the opposite of truth. I can deal with a total falsehood because everybody in the room knows, well, that's just stupid. Nobody would see that as a truth. It's the twisted truth that is divisive and hurts. And so you stop worrying. First of all, those, and there's always a few. Jesus had them sent his disciples. You have always had them in this church for 120 years. Where I'm going is going to have such things. There's always going to be some, and maybe it's even you, that somehow you get a fixated on a partial statement, and the reason why you're not liberated to walk in the Spirit and have that peace of mind that God wants to give you is because you've not done what God says. Whatever is true, think on these things. Whatever is noble. That is honorable versus dishonorable. Some of you do well to cut some of those channels off a dish or off the cable. And retweak what you listen to and go ahead and download that everything that you listen to. And I know for the older folks, including this person, you now can make sure. When you used to buy albums, there was always a couple songs on the album that maybe was a little shady. Now you can get 100% of the music that's all edifying and positive and it's truthful. But if you aren't careful, you'll listen to some unhonorable things. Things that are a little shady with a little nuance of double meaning. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, in contrast to unjust. Whatever is pure versus impure. Whatever is lovely versus ugly. I didn't really pick up the, the language until I went to the South. And I heard, uh, I think it was my wife who first said, well, that's just ugly. Speaking of someone's really bad behavior. Have any of you ever used that? Well, that's just ugly to say that. Have any of you ever used that? I was not exposed to that being a boy from the north. But I went to Texas and met a bunch of southerners. And I heard someone with that southern drawl say, well, that's just ugly. Well, I think that goes right back to here. Whatever is lovely versus ugly. Do you know that some of you possibly, even at this stage in your life, 
ought to stop hanging around people that are opposite of the things that we ought to be thinking of because whenever you're around them, you feel like you're like an octopus has reached out there and got a hold of you and you're sucked into their world. It's not a bad thing. In fact, Proverbs even teaches parents how to help their sons and daughters avoid a person who has a temper, a person who doesn't control himself. You coach up your daughter, don't associate with this person who's a sluggard, who's lazy. The Bible is very clear about who you ought to have an intimate relationship with. Maybe a cure to your worry, take a quick inventory of the people you're constantly texting and writing and interacting with because when you're around them they overwhelm your environment with things or things you ought not think about lovely ugly whatever is admirable that is of good report or commendable as opposed to you know you talk to someone the glass is always half empty you talk to another person when you bring out a highlight of rex look rex such a great guy and then someone will come and say well let me tell you some negative things about rex you ever get around people like that I mean, they feel like it's a moral calling in life that when you present something, you're feeling a little upbeat and you walk into their world and all of a sudden they feel compelled to give you a little bit of reality. I'd like to give them a little bit of reality, like I kick them right in the chest or something. Because they, they are spiritual uh, drags on your walk. And they are your environment. By the way, I always say to kids, I say to myself, you become your environment, so choose your environment wisely. And no matter what your age is, sometimes the friends who are your lifelong ages, they've gone off the deep end. Still be friends, still care for them, but stop hanging around them so much. Because you're becoming someone or something that, quite frankly, is not pleasing to God. And you don't have to blame that person. But the Bible says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think on these things. Think on them. That's a, that carries with it a level of intentionality. By the worry is not something that God walks up like you go through McDonald's and say, I got some worries. I'm not going to talk to God and he's going to give me a pill. And when I eat the pill after a period of time, uh, worry will diminish. I've learned just like you've learned the habit of worrying. You've got to counteract that worrying with what he gives us, Paul's writing, to the believers at Philippi. I give you a list of things you need to think about. Prioritize relationship. Discipline your thought life. Number three, be content with the things that you have. Now, this just flat out is a terrible point for a preacher to make. Isn't a part of capitalism, which I believe is founded in the scripture, by the way, isn't a part of the American dream way that you're always pressing forward, always achieving more, always having that drive? Isn't that a isn't it a part? Isn't, isn't Paul the one who said, I pressed toward the mark and there's a prize laid up for him and I finished my core? Isn't he the one that even taught us about hitting like a boxer and rather than just hitting in the wind? And isn't, isn't God the one who says that we ought to be a driven person? I think made in the image of God, you are a person who's an achiever and a climber and moving forward. In fact, I think it's an abnormality when I come across someone who's a lazy, good-for-nothing bum who expects everybody else to give him. That person's operating against the direct image of God in which he was made. But that being on one end of the spectrum, another end of the spectrum is we have to come to the place that you have a contentment, that you're not complacent, but there's a holy contentment. The house you live in, 
hey, when's it ever going to be big enough? I mean, many of you are at the stage of life, you're thinking, I'm tired of cleaning this thing and mowing all that stuff. That will be doing something. I've spent a lot of hours doing this stuff. How many have already been there? Let me hear you see your hand. Come on, show me. I mean, do you remember all that energy you spent of going from here to here? By the way, that's why you have trouble relating to the generation behind us. They don't get it. This is also the generation that my generation, that's equipping and training that generation, we presume they have drive. They do not. I'm dealing with a generation that's an entitled generation. And I'm talking about in our churches as well. And so sermons have to be tweaked to appeal to them to feel guilty about being complacent. But on worrying, we ought to be content with the things that we have. Hebrews 13:15 summarizes the teaching and advising believers to be free of the love of money and depend on God's promise not to forsake His people. Food and lodging should be enough for the godly, 1 Timothy 6. The believer can be dent no matter what the outcome and circumstances, Philippians 4:11. Believers are content to know that the Father, John 14, 8 through 9, and depend on His grace, 2 Corinthians. And we need to compare that with 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 through 11. Are you worrying about something today? Rather than focusing on what happened and you're bummed about, what could happen in the future, what you want, what you missed out in the past, I dare you to stop and just take a look at what you have. I'm being honest with you. I'm looking at you right now. You look pretty good to me. Now, that may be because I'm weird. But I, 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 don't, I didn't meet anybody today. And by and large, you all take showers and baths here. So you smell pretty good. You dress pretty decent. Your clothes are nice. Most of you are able to get in through the doors. When we're done, look at our parking lot. You drive some pretty decent stuff. I've been in many of your homes. Your home is not an embarrassment. Think about this for a moment. There are some people, when they look in the mirror, their hair is never good enough. There's always something with their face. The body type, height and build, endomorphic, mesomorphic, ectomorphic, the three basic body types, they wish they were something that they're not. There comes a place where we see God, and seeing God, we look at ourselves through His lens, and we praise Him and say, Lord, thank You so much. I aspired as a young man to be an astronaut until I grew uh, all that, uh, that nine inches between my eighth grade year and ninth grade year. And back then we were told astronauts couldn't be, or that whole area, that discipline, uh, had to be, uh, could be over six foot. I grew six foot three and three quarters. I had everything else lined up. Now, I know it was probably stupid looking back, could I have ever been an astronaut? But back then in the 60s, I mean, this was something that boys dreamed about, and I had the, some of the... the intellectual ability, they said I did anyhow, and athletic skills that possibly I could, I could be one of those. But I had to stop and say it's not going to happen. And then sports, playing a little sport, and I thought, then I got saved. And I like to think, I go back to, how about today? Being content. And then my final point is reach out to someone in need. I've learned that the, the quickest cure for a person who is worrying, find someone else who is more needy than you. Don't tell anybody about it. Expend yourself. You're feeling a little bit of pain in your body? Take a trip to the local hospital 
of the local care for elderly. Go on the wing at Kosar where you see a whole wing of children with some deformities or facing, quite frankly, death imminently. I'll tell you what will happen to you when you begin to reach out. It's also the quickest cure for depression if it's beyond the, the medical level of depression. A person who's self-absorbed gets depressed. But a quick cure for that is come out of your house, pull back the drapes, get in your car, and go find someone who needs something, and you have the ability to address the need. And quite honestly, it won't even, won't even cost you a whole lot to do it. It's really not a whole lot of effort. In fact, you'll find yourself. And by the way, the quickest fix is little children. Have you ever seen a little child so distraught and so overwhelmed and all they need is attention from someone who's just a significant other adult? I've seen this, pardon me, but I see this in high school teachers. You say, how in the world can a teacher put up with those teenagers all their life? I'll tell you exactly why. It's like an, it's like an addict, if I can say this. A kid walks through your door. They live in a life of abuse and neglect. And here you walk into the life and you just touch them on the shoulder. Or you say a kind and gentle word. And you watch a transformation right in front of you. I've seen this happen. Where, quite frankly, you say, I really don't have a lot to offer like so-and-so. And yet, you extend yourself to someone. And when you do, you see a transforming happening. It's like, I can be used to the Lord. And those things that are worrying about the past and the future and my circumstances... It's almost like, God, thank you for taking the scales from my eyes. Because here's a person that was maybe just at the end of the day. My, my daughter, who was really struggling financially, I was with her one time. She didn't know I saw this. But there was a lady that was ahead of her in line, and she was short $6 and something. She had several children. You have to stand. My daughter's 24. has three kids herself. And struggling financially. My daughter reached into her purse and pulled out $10, which I knew how important that $10 was to her, and gave it to that lady. Well, I saw this around the corner. Later, I talked about it in the car, and she said, Oh, Daddy. She says, I've learned. You ever heard that movie, Pay It Forward? She said, I've learned it. God sometimes put people in your life just to help them. And didn't you not see with that lady how she responded with her face, Daddy? That here she was overwhelmed and embarrassed and was trying to figure out what she should put back and, and whatever. She said, Phew. she said, Daddy, didn't you see? I did see. Well, can I just tell you there, this? I got schooled by my daughter. If, she ever, if there was ever a person that ought to have some worries, it ought to be her. Yesterday, Anthony mistakenly shut Jesus' hands in the door. Off to the emergency room. I mean, there is always something raising small kids. But I watch her life and she amazes me that someone ought to be overwhelmed with worry. I'm the one that's overwhelmed with worry about, oh, the deal, what will people think? And I'm abandoning and I'm going there and it's a new job. And finally, my daughter sat me down and just preached me a sermon. And the sermon was a good sermon that talked about God's in control. Stop worrying.
reach out to someone in need. Philippians 1, 3 through 6, we see he did that there. Verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 in Philippians, he said to all the saints. Paul then says, but you know that Timothy was uh, proved himself. 2.22, 3.25, Paul again talks about reaching out to someone. Look, I have no idea why God prompted me to bring this message, but I'm suspicious. Maybe, if nothing else, it was for me in preparation. But I have a suspicion that in my three services today, someone walked in those doors or will walk in these doors in the Lord's house on Resurrection Sunday and walk out those doors getting a little touch from the Holy Spirit, from His Word, and put in perspective the thing that you carried. You came backpacks and luggage and you came in so burdened and the Lord says, let me take that little suitcase of stress off you. Oh, by the way, let me take that, that troublesome, overwhelming thing. Oh, would you mind if I just reached down and grabbed your backpack of cares? And you walk right through those doors a little bit lighter. A little more ready to face. Don't worry. Be happy. Let's pause for prayer. You say, preacher, would you just pray for me? I'm not going to give a uh, come forward uh, kneeling invitation. Let's do the invitation right where you said. Say, preacher, would you pray for me? I really didn't realize until this message, my, it was designed by the Spirit of God for me personally. I'm dealing with some worries, and I would really appreciate you praying for me. I'm asking Brother David, one of our deacons, if he would just... Would you just stand with me, David and Kathy? And would you just look with me? There's going to be some hands go up. And would you just join me in praying for these? Would you just pray for me is what you're asking. I see Brother Bob's back here, one of our deacons too. Bob, would you mind looking with me and praying for these? Just slip your hand up and say, pray for me, preacher. Pray for me, Bob, David, Kathy. Please pray for me. Hold them for just a second. I see your hands. More importantly, God sees that hand. Isn't it wonderful? Yes, so many. Father, our heart is warmed within us because the truth of it is you are in control no matter what has happened, what will happen, what's happening right now. I'm embarrassed, but I'm so glad I'm able to repent and reach out to you, God, and say, God, thanks. You remember my frame, it's but dust. And I've been captured by the worries of this life. And I bring all of it to you. And you like it. And I bring it to you, lay at your feet. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the burden bearer, the load lifter. You take our cares upon yourself. Thank you, Lord. For these who just raised their hand indicated they have a need. Would you meet that need? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Bob, our chairman of our deacons, is coming right now. Now, Bob is drifting away to nothing. That man has been working outside 104 degree temperatures, doing 8, 9, 10 hours a day, and says he's as happy as he's been in a long time. So he has a, a few things he wants to share with us, Brother Bob. There you go. Oh, no.